Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're glad to have you with us this morning. We're in Genesis 4 today, continuing from verse 7 and following. With that said, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 again, as I did last week, and we're going to be looking at our second message in this passage from Genesis 4, 1 through 16. We'll pick up a couple of verses in this passage again next week as we continue in Genesis 4, 17 and following for some context for verse 17 and following, but today we're just continuing where we left off last week, which was with the sin of Cain and Abel, specifically the sin of Cain against Abel. So we looked at their offering and the fact that Abel had offered the better portion, if you will, the firstborn in faith, and Cain had not offered in faith, and he had withheld the first fruits of his labor, and he became angry with Abel and seems to be plotting his murder, and at that point we hear the Lord intervene. So we're going to read that passage again and kind of finish this story this morning. So look with me at Genesis 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and born Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks. Father, we are thankful for the word that the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, has spoken to us by his Spirit. We are thankful that the Spirit superintended Moses to write this 
for the good of the church in every age. We pray that we would listen to the sound of your voice, that we would hear what your word says, that we would be thankful, repentant, and rejoicing in your kindness to us, that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Do that work by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to sort of start this morning by asking a question, why do unbelievers often hate Christians? The answer I usually hear when I ask this question is about how Christians can be hypocrites or phonies. Now I'm certain, I'm certain that there are professing Christians who are hypocrites. There are perhaps many professing Christians who are hypocrites. And I am quite confident that does not give a good name to the Lord's church, nor to the Lord. But I've also heard this, we're not doing enough to win over unbelievers. They hate us because we're foreign and unintelligible to them, and and we don't do enough to communicate the gospel to them clearly. And perhaps that is true in some cases. But note that thus far, I could give more answers, but thus far, answers locate the hatred of the world for the church in something the church is doing wrong. We have this notion that if the church does everything right, then the world will love us. But what if that's an unbiblical notion? And it is an unbiblical notion. What if the world hates the church because it does what is right? What if the world hates the church for the right things it does? So I want to narrow my question and sort of narrow our field of answers so I can kind of put away certain objections. Why do unbelievers hate mature consistent, godly Christians. We're not talking about hypocrites now. Why do they hate mature, consistent, godly Christians? And in case you're wondering, yes, there are mature, consistent, godly Christian people. This kind of equivocation where it's like, oh, we're all sinners, so nobody's actually walking in godliness is false. It's false. There are mature, consistent, godly Christian people, and you ought to strive to be one. In fact, It's expected that your elders and deacons can be described in that way. And the men that I serve with, I believe, embody this. I know several Christians in this body. They're not office holders in our church. They're just members of the body who I would describe as mature, consistent, godly Christians. So why do unbelievers hate those Christians? They hate them. Because the seed of the serpent is at enmity with the seed of the woman. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Those who are children of the devil hate the children of God. Listen to John 15, 18. Here's what Jesus says. 
if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The world hates the church first and foremost because the children of the devil hate the children of God because Satan hates the Lord Jesus and Satan's children are like their father. Those who walk in darkness hate the light and those whose deeds are wicked hate those whose deeds are righteous. That's precisely why Cain hates Abel. Cain hated Abel because Abel's whole life was given to the Lord. Abel was not putting on a religious act like Cain was. He was not giving God his leftovers, if you will, like Cain was. Abel trusted the Lord. Abel obeyed the Lord's voice. He gave the Lord his first and his best, and Cain hated his godliness and his righteousness. Cain hated that about him. Listen to 1 John 3. In case you think I'm making this up, let's hear from the Lord as he speaks by his spirit through the apostle John. In 1 John 3.11, we're told this. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now hear that. Cain was of the evil one. In other words, Cain is the seed of the serpent. And he hated his brother and murdered him. And why did he murder him? That's what John asked. Why did he murder him? Here's the answer John gives. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Cain murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. He was envious of his brother's righteousness and so he murdered him. I want to clarify that. It's something that we need to sort of have a mental enema with regard to. It is not true that if you walk in godliness, the world will love you. That if you're a consistent Christian, the world will fawn over you and flock to the church and come on in. It's simply not true. Unbelievers often hate us because we love the Lord, his people, and his law. And this is what drove the hatred of Cain toward Abel. Now, sometimes unbelievers hate us because we're sinful jerks. But if you walk in godliness, their hatred does not go away. It's often stoked. And this is what drove the hatred of Cain toward Abel. Abel loved the law. 
He loved the Lord. He loved God's people, so Cain hated him. And this morning, we're going to look at the murder of Abel. And we're going to look at the judgment that followed his murder. And as we do, I want to look first at the Lord's warning to Cain in verse 7. We already looked at it briefly last week. We'll look at it briefly again this morning. The Lord's warning to Cain in verse 7. Second, we're going to look at Cain's sinful act or Cain's murder of Abel in verse 8. And third, we're going to look at God's judgment on Cain in verses 9 through 16. God's judgment on Cain in verses 9 through 16. You might say, and you're going to stop there. God warns. (laughs) Cain sins. God judges. Have a good morning. No, I'll move to the gospel from there. But I want to look at that. So look first at the Lord's warning to Cain. Look at Genesis 4 and verse 7. Genesis 4 and verse 7. The Lord speaking to him. We know that from verse 6. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? We considered that in some depth last week. So let's look at the next phrase. Lord speaking to Cain. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is toward you, but you must rule over it. The Lord warns Cain about his sin. And sin here is being personified as a kind of door demon, ready to pounce, crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And sin, it's being personified. Sin desires to master him. This sounds similar to what we hear about Satan, for example, in 1 Peter 5, 8. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Friends, it's important that we remember that as a result of mankind's guilt and corruption in Adam, the guilt and corruption that we all inherit at conception, Satan, sin, and death enslave us. Mankind is born dead in his trespasses and sin. None of us in and of ourselves is righteous, no, not one. In our fallen state, we do not keep God's law. Indeed, we cannot keep God's law. This fallen state, this original sin, this inability to keep God's law is Cain's condition. Now, I don't want us to quickly pass by something that's incredibly gracious happening here. So, We need to note the inversion of the scene of Eve's temptation that's happening here. There's a kind of inversion of the temptation of Eve. In Genesis 3, Satan, the serpent, comes to tempt Eve to sin. In Genesis 4, God comes to try to convince Cain not to sin. And Cain would not be talked out of his sin. Even by the Lord himself. Even though the Lord came to Cain and tried to convince him not to sin, Cain still sins. And friends, this is true every time you hear the Lord's word and continue in your sin. The Lord is speaking in his word. You read it. You hear it preached. Your friends remind you of it. And then you continue in your sin. Even when the Lord sends his appointed ministers, the elders of your church, to warn you in accord with the word, you often, like Cain, do not heed the warning. You just continue in your sin. And here's what I'm driving at. An external word 
even from the Lord, is not sufficient to convert your hard heart. Apart from the internal work of the Holy Spirit applying the word of God, the word merely falls upon deaf ears, blinded eyes, and hard hearts. If the Holy Spirit blows on the spiritually dead, then those dry bones will live. But apart from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, the best I can do in preaching and the best you can do in personal spiritual disciplines is decorate spiritually dead corpses. We need the internal work of the Holy Spirit to keep us from sin. We must ask for it. We must plead with God for it. And we must exercise the means of grace that God has given to that end. That's why you hear someone like Augustine pray, command what you will and give what you command. See, Lord, you can command whatever you want, obviously. But I need you to give what you command because I cannot do it apart from your grace. We need the Lord to work in us and through us if we hope to believe and obey his word. Now, I don't mean we're not responsible for our obedience or disobedience. We are responsible. But our efforts at obedience, apart from the grace of God, are utterly useless. Utterly useless. And sadly, in this scene, Cain does not heed the warning of the Lord, a warning that the Lord kindly gives to him. And that leads to our second point, Cain's sinful act. Look at Genesis 4.8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And that's not incidental. I'll get to it in a minute. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The language of this verse is setting you up for Cain's act of premeditated murder. And it's not just premeditated murder. It's actually premeditated murder against his own brother. In fact, the term brother in these verses that In verse 8 and following, the term brother is used of Abel seven times. There's an emphasis on this being your own family member that you're premeditating murder against and committing it against. And note how the verse starts. Cain spoke to his brother Abel and when they were in the field. Now, we know what's happening here. Cain is essentially asking his brother to go out into the field with him. He's luring him out. He wants him where no one can hear his cries for help. He doesn't want the rest of the family to hear the cries of Abel. We'll pick up similar language in other locations, like Exodus 22, but I want to look specifically at Deuteronomy 22. Look there, Deuteronomy 22. Keep your hand in Genesis 4 and look over at Deuteronomy 22. And I want to pay attention to verses 25 to 27. The scene just before we're going to look at is a scene in which if a man takes a woman in the city and has relations with her outside of marriage, both of them deserve the death penalty. And the language of in the city, the point is they're doing it somewhere where the cries could be heard and she didn't cry out, therefore she's guilty with him. She sought no help because the point is she was complicit in the act. But the next text is going to show us a woman who's not complicit in the act. Look there. But if in the open country, verse 25, a man meets a young woman who's betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. 
But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. The point is the man, this man lures a woman out to the field where no one will know of his act and he rapes her where no one will hear her cry for help. This is going to come up later, so I might as well take it on now. When Cain lures Abel out to an open field to murder him where no one will hear his cry for help, the question comes up, who would hear his cry for help anyway? Who is Cain afraid of hearing this incident? The answer is the rest of the family. The rest of the family. His parents, Adam and Eve. Likely Cain's wife, Genesis 4, 17, Cain has a wife. Their children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins. Now you might wonder how I surmise all that. Are you just making stuff up now? Well, there are likely hundreds or potentially thousands of people at this point in time. At this point in time. Look at Genesis 4.25 briefly. Genesis 4.25. Notice this text. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. When was Seth born? Look down at Genesis 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam and Eve give birth to Seth when they're 130 years old. Likely they give birth to Cain when they're about a year old. Now that sounds odd to us, but remember they're created as full-grown adults. Maybe Abel at two years old. I really don't know. But Adam and Eve had a lot more children that we do not hear about. Other than by quick mentions of lots of people. Their children likely married and had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And remember that people were living much longer and they were clearly giving birth much later in life. If they were merely as productive as a couple of the families in our church, they would have had thousands of children and grandchildren in 130 years. We see reference to these folks, Genesis 4.14. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. People who would find Cain, who are these people who might find him and kill him? Well, it's likely his family members taking vengeance for Abel's murder. In these passages of Genesis, we're focused on three children of Adam and Eve for theological reasons. Not because that's all the children they had, but we're learning of the development of the story of the enmity of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But that doesn't mean there weren't more children. They're just assumed in the text and we move along. With that said, let me return to our point. Cain, the older brother of Abel, gained his trust. Lured him to a field. Isolated him. And murdered him. And herein is the anatomy of a predator whether to steal, kill, or destroy, whether the predator's desire is to murder or to rape or to molest, their approach generally follows the same pattern. 
It's generally someone older and trusted. It's generally someone who charms his victim with seemingly good intentions. He's generally someone who lures the victim into a secret or hidden location or situation. He's generally someone who then commits his wicked act away from the view of others. And as with Cain, he is someone who denies it ever happened and then shirks any responsibility. Further, he often hates the victim whom he sinned against because he blames the victim for luring him into sin. Look at 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, it's about a third of the way in. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Maybe not quite a third. And look at verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now catch this. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. 
And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. We'll stop there. Amnon plots to sexually violate Tamar. She falls victim to this after asking him not to do it. And then after the deed is done, he hates her. He blames her for his outrageous behavior. She's ashamed. And she says, basically, you need to marry me. Because where can I carry my shame? He rejects her and throws her out. And she goes away weeping. If you go on in this scene, Absalom will find out about this and utterly hate him. Amnon and find a way to put him to death. And sadly, David, her father, won't do much about it. As an aside, parents, I want you to hear me. This is an aside, but I want the parents to please hear me. This is how children get taken advantage of by predators. The predator always works to establish a good reputation. They charm everyone around until they're trusted. They gain the trust of the child by attempting to establish emotional intimacy quickly. Maybe by listening well to them or revealing selected facts about themselves. They then isolate the child and look for an opportunity to initiate physical contact. They push the narrative that the relationship needs to be secret. They con the child into believing they cannot trust their parents nor other adults. Now, children, I want you to hear me. If any adult, whether a family member or teacher or police officer or pastor, comes to you and tells you, we're going to go somewhere secret and do something you don't tell your parents about, you run from that person and tell your parents. But they con the child into believing they cannot trust their parents. When the child is uncomfortable with the physical contact, they explain to the child why the child really wanted it. They even shame the child into believing that the child baited them into it and sent them mixed messages. They then keep pushing the boundaries and they also continue to isolate the child from others. When confronted about their behavior, they lie and deflect and tell you not to trust the child. I mean, if it was really me violating the child, then why do they keep coming back for more? When it's first revealed that this is happening, it's shocking and hard to believe the child, precisely because the predator has charmed those around him into trusting him. This is the same story over and over again. We need to beware of such people. And we need to beware of our own hearts lest we allow our hearts to become perverse like this. And you might say, I would never become so twisted like this. But let's be clear, folks. No one sets out to become twisted like this. It starts with a little lust, a little greed, a little hatred. And the more you entertain those thoughts, those desires the more this wickedness grows like a cancer that infests your heart and mind. You push one boundary, you excuse yourself, then you press another, and this sin has enslaved you. And I bring this up because the perversity in our own culture, particularly since the, I think, 
inflamed by the widespread use of pornography has seemed to exacerbate this, particularly against women and children, in a way that we even have legislators and teachers' unions now urging for laws by which public educators take small children and talk to them about all manner of sexual perversity and then say that their parents aren't allowed to know about it. Historically, we call that a predator. Now we're beginning to call that public education. It's sick. We've run away with, been just carried off with this wickedness. And don't think you can't be perverted by your own pursuit of entertaining small thoughts that grow and fester and become increasingly disgusting and then criminal. What's the Lord's response to such wickedness? Let's look at the third point, God's judgment on Cain. God's judgment on Cain. Verses 9 through 16. I want to read this whole section. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and away from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, I want to begin by noting two aspects of this section. First, I want to note God's patience with Cain. And then second, I want to note God's justice against Cain. God's patience with Cain, you see it in verse 9, look there. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Where is your brother Abel? The Lord comes to question Cain as he did with Adam in Genesis 3.10. Adam, where are you? Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain is given a chance to confess. We talk about confession. Homo legeo in Greek. Homo same legeo is to say, to speak. To say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Not to justify it, not to downplay it, not to modify it according to the world's standards, but to say about your sin what the holy God says about your sin. To confess your sin. Cain is given a chance to confess. God has come to him and warned him. He's disobeyed anyway and murdered his godly brother. And God comes and patiently gives him a chance to confess. The Lord is giving him yet another opportunity to come clean and repent. But instead he lies. Further, he pretends as if the sin is not his responsibility. In one sense, Cain seems to be saying, 
is it my job to keep my eye on him all the time? I mean, he's his own man. I'm not responsible for him. But in truth, Cain does have a responsibility for his brother. He should want to find and redeem his brother if he's in need. What's amazing here is that Cain attempts to lie to God. And to be a bit of a smart aleck toward God, look at the response, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. God is omniscient. He knows all things. And you're going to try to lie to him? It's outrageous. You might get away with lying to me or one of your friends, but you can't lie to the Lord. I do not know. And then he becomes a smart aleck. Am I my brother's keeper? Is he my responsibility? Look, you might lie to a friend and pop off to them, but to lie to the holy God and pop off to him? It's outrageous. John Gill comments. He says, Cain was so blinded by Satan as to forget to whom he was speaking. That he was the omniscient God and knew the wickedness he had done and the falsehood he now delivered and was capable of confronting him with both and of inflicting just punishment on him. Think of that. We lie to the Lord. You do it. We may think we're merely lying to our spouse or our friends or our children or our parents or our pastors or whoever, but... When we lie to them, we are lying before and thus ultimately to the omniscient God. And friends, he knows. Our Lord always knows when we are lying. When you tell a half-truth as if it's the full truth, God still knows you're lying. Our friends may not know, but the Lord knows and your lies will find you out. They will. They will find you out. The Lord will not allow your lying to go unnoticed nor unpunished. The Lord is long-suffering, but he is not forever suffering. He will avenge. So let's look at that now, God's justice against Cain. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The question that God asks of Cain, what have you done, is an accusation. The Lord is not looking for new information. He's accusing him. It's similar to the question that God asks Eve in Genesis 3.13. What have you done? And note what the Lord says next. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I want you to notice two quick facts about that. First, the voice of Abel's blood. And the word voice is fronted in the text. It's emphasized. Your brother's blood speaks. The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground. Abel's cries may not have been heard, Cain, when you dragged him out in that field and murdered him. But his cries are being heard by me. They may not have been heard by his family, but I know. Abel's cries for justice, Abel's cries for vengeance are being heard. Second, notice these two words that are so important, you can almost run over them 
the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Crying to me. These two words may be two of the most important words for all victims of injustice to hear. The voice of Abel's blood cries to me. Some wicked person may treat you unjustly. Some wicked person may have murdered, raped, molested, robbed, disparaged, or defamed you. And you need to know that the Lord knows. The Lord hears. The Lord will avenge. Christian, if unbelievers have unjustly attacked and harmed you, the Lord hears. The Lord knows. The Lord will avenge. Christians throughout generations have taken solace in the Lord's justice. We just saw that in Revelation 6 in the opening of the five seal, if you were there on a Sunday afternoon, that under the altar, those who had been slain are crying out for God's justice. God clothes them in white and tells them to be patient for a little while, and I will bring justice. The Lord hears, and the Lord will answer. It's incredibly important that we hear this, believers. When injustice comes to you, even secret injustice, injustice in which no one hears your cries, God hears, God knows, and God will avenge. The blood of the millions of people who were murdered by evil men with no one to save them, or by wicked governments with no one to hear their cries, or silently in the abortion clinic by their own parents, All that blood cries out to God, and he hears their voice for justice, and he will avenge. And we see the justice that comes for Cain. Look at verse 11 and 12. And now, this, by the way, is, and now is just like the therefore in verse 23 of Genesis 3. It's introducing an ethical consequence. Here comes the ethical consequence, and now... You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You're hearing this language of his curse. He's cursed from the ground. Cursed are you from the ground sounds much like what is dropped on the serpent in Genesis 3.14, cursed are you above all livestock. He has acted like his father, the devil, and now he's being cursed like his father, the devil. If you will, like father, like son. He, as a farmer, will no longer yield the fruit of the ground. It will come with even increased difficulty for him. He will be a fugitive and a wanderer. It's a hendiadis. It's a, it's a way of saying something twice and emphasizing it. You're basically going to be expelled from the garden, from the outside of the garden where they were, further away. You're going to wander. If you are wicked and unclean, then you are driven from the presence of the Lord. You're exiled. Defiling yourself with sin, Israel's told in Leviticus 18, caused you to be driven from the land. Thus Cain is banished. Cain is exiled from the land. This is the second exile in Genesis. The first exiles with Adam and Eve as they're 
exiled from the Garden of Eden and pressed outside the gate. But Cain is now exiled even further, further down the mountain, further away from where God dwells, and thus further into death. He is banished from his family relationships. He's banished from success in farming the ground. He's banished from the land near Eden to a further exile. He's banished further east of Eden. This is exile from family, from home, exile further away from the Lord. This is death. Let's look at Cain's response to this justice of God. Look at verse 13. We'll see his response. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. This is fascinating. The punishment is too great for me to bear. Not, Lord, you're holy. You've been kind and gracious. You reached out your hand to me to prevent me from sin. I sinned anyway and murdered my godly brother Abel, who did me no wrong. I sinned against Abel and against you. Please forgive me. That isn't it. It's the punishment's too great for me. I don't like the consequences of my sin. It's too hard. He feels compelled to hide from the presence or the face of the Lord. He sees his distance from the Lord growing. But what's fascinating is in the face of that, Cain is fearing man. He's afraid of man. Cain fears man more than God. The holy God is judging him, and what's he afraid of? Whoever finds me will kill me. More importantly, Cain cares about his earthly consequences more than his eternal consequences. Cain fears the one who can kill the body. But he does not fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. Friends, this is precisely how we know whom we fear more. What do we dread more when we sin and when our sin is found out? Do we dread the earthly consequences more? Or do we dread the holy God against whom we sinned? Sovereign grace, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now the Lord's patience continues with wicked Cain, even after his complaint about consequences. It's remarkable. He continues to be patient. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Cain, not so, not so with regard to being murdered. Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. The Lord will not allow man to take vengeance on Cain. Now this accomplishes three ends. We'll pick this up again some next week, but it accomplishes three ends. First, it gives Cain yet more time to repent. He's not immediately cast into hell where he deserves to be. He's given more time to repent. Second, it leaves the vengeance for Cain's sin to the Lord, not man. And third... It providentially provides for the building of the city of man, which we're going to look at next week. But Cain received some kind of mark or literally a sign, like the sign that Noah receives the rainbow or the sign that Abraham receives the circumcision, receives a sign. What is the sign? We don't know. 
Actually, we don't know. If I gave you an example, I'd just be making stuff up. We don't know what the sign is. But it's a sign that protects Cain from human vengeance and leaves him to suffer divine vengeance. And he suffers such outside of God's presence. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. It's interesting. He settled or dwelled in the land of wandering east of Eden. He's to dwell in the land of wandering east of Eden. This curse is to be outside of God's presence, away from his face. It's to be far from his temple where he dwells. It's to be far east of Eden. And you'll see this play out as we go through Genesis. For example, in Genesis 11:2, when we get to Babel. Babel is in the land of Shinar, far to the east. You'll see it played out in Genesis 13, 11, where east is the direction as well of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's being emphasized intentionally. You're far out there in the city of man away from the city of God. It's to be driven out to the world away from God's people and God's presence. Here's how Matthew Poole, Puritan commentator, sums us up. He was banished from the place of God's special presence and habitation, from the society of his father and of the only church which God had upon the earth, and dwelt in the land of Nod, in the land which was afterwards called Nod, from Cain's unsettled conditioning, because he continued wandering hither and thither in it. This is the same idea picked up, by the way, in New Testament excommunication. Same idea picked up in New Testament excommunication. You are no longer a part of God's people. You are cast away from God's presence. You no longer commune with the Lord and his people. And you ought not to take lightly the discipline of the Lord, for there is no greater consequence for your immortal soul than to be cast away from God's presence. Not even one. Now, friends, I don't want to leave you here with bad news. Cain would not be his brother's keeper, but Jesus came to be the keeper of his brothers. Cain took his brother's life. Christ gave his life for his brothers. Look at Hebrews 12, 24. We've looked at this passage already in Genesis, but we'll look at it again. Hebrews 12. And verse 24, he talks about our coming to heavenly Mount Zion as the gathered people of God worshiping him. We, by the Spirit, if you will, ascend to heaven. And notice what he says in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is Abel's blood cry out for justice and vengeance. Christ's blood speaks a better word. What is that better word? Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness, for grace, for mercy. Abel's blood left Cain unclean and outside the presence of God. Christ's blood cleanses us from all sin. Abel's blood sent Cain into exile, far from God, and into slavery to sin. Christ's blood ransoms us from sin and brings us near to God. Christ's blood sanctifies us, purifies us, 
and cleanses our consciences. It is by the blood of Christ that we are brought into God's holy presence. Please understand this. The blood of the millions who were slain by sinful men throughout the ages cries out for justice. The blood of the one, of Jesus, cries out for forgiveness for the millions. Do you trust him? Are you looking to him? Do you understand that you may have committed the unrighteous and wicked deeds of Cain and that your wicked deeds may cry out for God's vengeance against you? But Christ's blood speaks a better word for you. So you look to him and be saved. Be forgiven your sins. Be washed clean. Sovereign grace in the face of the wickedness against you You have a God who hears, who knows, and who will avenge. And in the face of your own wickedness, you have a God who graciously gave his beloved son for you to bring you mercy and forgiveness. Look to him and give thanks. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would trust in the blood of Christ that speaks a better word a word of mercy and grace and forgiveness for our own sins. That we would look away from ourselves into Christ, knowing that his giving of his life is wholly sufficient for us. May we trust him and walk in obedience to him. And may we also know that you, you are the God who hears the cries of those against whom injustice is committed, that you know and that you will avenge. May we trust you in that and walk in godliness all the days of our lives, looking ever to Christ and being thankful for the grace that we know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.